18, and it's verses 1 through 8. The parable of the persistent widow. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus actually told two parables in this setting in the Gospel of Luke. And so we continue now with the second parable in the chapter 18. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Come Holy Spirit, wash over us like a fresh rain. Implant your word into our hearts and our minds this morning that we might live it out each and every day. We pray this in the power and the grace of your Holy Spirit. Amen. So some parables have a really deep meaning. Some parables have layers that you can peel back one after the other, and you can discover something and then rediscover it. I mean, think about something like the story of the prodigal son or the good Samaritan. You can read those stories and reread them, and you'll find something new every time. And then other parables, they're a little more blunt, right? Jesus, in this morning's readings, is a little bit on the nose, right? It seems pretty straightforward. In the second parable, there are two characters, a, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And when you read these parables, they're so blunt that they're almost caricatures rather than real people. Think about the Pharisee. He's pretty obnoxious, right? Did you hear his prayer? 
He talks about himself in his prayer four times in two sentences. There's somebody who loves himself an awful lot. I, 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 I. But to be fair, even though this doesn't sound like a guy I'd want to hang out with, he's only speaking the truth. He tells God, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all my income. So is it really fair that the Pharisee ends up as the bad example by the end of the parable? I mean, look at the tax collector. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were no good. Don't think of a a modern IRS agent who's, you know, following the law and applying the rules. In Jesus' day, tax collectors were kind of rogue agents. They contracted with the enemy invaders from Rome, and as long as they got all the money that was required to kick back up to Rome, they could take whatever else they wanted. Instead of an IRS agent, you could think about a mafia uh, tough guy walking down the street and collecting protection money from all the businesses, right? Tax collectors were stakeholders in a corrupt system. They took from the poor and they gave to the rich. This is not the kind of guy that Jesus would normally be praising. So what's up with this simple little story? The Pharisee prays, Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that guy. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? I'll be honest. I was thinking about this all week, and it happened several times. First was when I was crossing the South Bridge, and I got just to the other side of the river, and I saw a car whose wheel had broken all the way off, and the rotor was digging into the pavement, and the car was leaning off to the left. And I prayed a little prayer, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that guy. Later that day, I went into the grocery store, and I got to the checkout line, and some dad was there with his little toddler screaming his head off, and I was there without kids. (laughs) And I said a little prayer, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that guy. Just last night... I went to the 40th birthday party of a friend of mine, and they had decorated the whole room with black balloons and everything that they could find that was dark and dreary to remind him that he was 40 years old. And we all hid and then jumped out and yelled surprise. And right at that moment, I prayed a little prayer and said, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that guy. But who's the target audience here? Jesus is uh, telling this parable to a group of religious folks, the, the Pharisees of his day. What if he's speaking not only to those Pharisees of his day, but what if he's speaking to the religious folks of our day? The kind of people who get up on a rainy Sunday morning, put on their nice clothes, come out and sit in a pew, to listen to the preacher. There's an important distinction being made with these two caricatures in this parable. It says in the end, the Pharisee leaves and he's unchanged. 
He comes into the temple, he says his prayers, and then he leaves the same way as he came in. He never asks God for forgiveness or for justification. The tax collector, on the other hand, doesn't even feel worthy to come into the temple. He stands far off by himself. And if you notice, he makes no promises that he's going to change. He makes no offers to repent of his sins. But he does know that he's entirely dependent on God's mercy. And Jesus says in the end that this man went home justified rather than the other one. I've got Martin Luther's picture up again this week. I found a little better likeness of him, a little more famous painting. We talked about him last week and and some of the things he did wrong, but uh, this is the Sunday that we celebrate the Protestant Reformation. It was 502 years ago this week that he marched out to the front door of the Wittenberg Castle Church and pounded in his notice of the 95 theses, the, the 95 points that he thought were wrong with the Catholic Church. As a theologian, James Howell says, Luther was reacting to a writer named Gabriel Beale, whose admonition was, do what is in you. But what is in me... What is in all of us is brokenness, a shackling to sin and self, and an inability to do much at all besides scrape out a living and then die alone. The loneliness. Notice the Pharisee in the parable. How does it describe him right at the beginning? It says he was standing by himself. A lonely Pharisee, saying his lonely prayers. We celebrate Luther's protest of the Protestant Reformation. Luther considered himself much more like the tax collector. He had tried all his life to be righteous enough, to be holy enough. And he came to a point where he realized he could only rely on God's grace. And he approached God with humility, The humility that allows the space for faith and for grace and for mercy. Well, he tacked those 95 points on the front door of his church. I reread them this week, and they reminded me of a more modern version. So here's a little video clip that I think feels a lot like Martin Luther's attitude in that moment. Let's take a look, Allison. One more, I forgot the joke there, but that's okay. And at the Festivus dinner, you gather your family around and tell them all the ways they have disappointed you over the past year. Tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear them. In some ways, it feels like Martin Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation with his fist in the air. I got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to hear about it. So even on a day when we we celebrate the Protestant Reformation, 
I wonder if it's also a good day to ask some new questions about it, too. Uh, we celebrate the Protestant Reformation because Martin Luther gave us some great gifts that we still enjoy today. One of his mottos was sola scriptura, the, the scriptures alone. It was a movement to return back to the Bible. Martin Luther was the first one to insist that the Bible needed to not be in Latin as it had been in the Catholic Church for a thousand years, but that it needed to be translated into each person's own language. So he translated the Bible into German and encouraged people from other countries to do the same. He also insisted that mercy and grace and faith were at the center of being reformed. The Reformation was a movement not to burn the church to the ground, but to replant it and to reshape it. But I wonder, these 502 years later, could the church have been reformed without dividing? This is one of the major splits in the family tree of Christianity. But what would it have looked like if they could have reconciled their differences and been reformed from within? What would that look like and what kind of heart would the people have to have to make it possible? I ask that question because in our own time of cultural division, at the time in history when our own United Methodist Church at, at the larger level is trying to decide if there's a way we all can live together or if we must divide, I think it's a good day to take a careful look at the Reformation and ask some different questions. But back to Jesus' parable. It says in the scriptures that he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. We don't use the word righteousness very much in everyday language, right? Did you, did you run across that word anywhere this week in conversation with people? Probably not. One author I read this week suggested we could replace righteousness with the modern word success. Now think about it this way. If you're uh, good at investment banking, you are righteous according to the standards of Wall Street. If you're popular at your school, we might say you are socially righteous. And last night, when Penn State entered Spartan Stadium, we wanted to see which team was more righteous at football. And now we ask the question, could the Nittany Lions be the most righteous team in the country? We'll see, right? But the tax collector is pretty much the opposite. He's a failure at keeping the Jewish law. He comes into the temple without anything to brag about. It says he was standing far off and looking on the temple. Well, if he's a tax collector, he probably wasn't welcome in the place of worship. He's the kind of guy if he walked into church this morning, he would pick the back pew in the back corner, right?
but righteousness and success. The way we usually measure them is us versus the other people around us. I'm going to tell you the story this morning of Asina O'Neill. It's an Australian teenager. Does anybody recognize her? It would be my teens in the room. No? She is a vegan lifestyle enthusiast. You might wonder what's a vegan lifestyle enthusiast. I don't know exactly the answer to that, but she has over 600,000 followers on social media. At the age of 18, she was making $2,000 a day for posting on Instagram and tagging different products who had become her sponsors. Not bad work if you can get it, right? But one day, something happened. And I want to let you hear it in her own words. So let's take a look at this clip. I quit social media for my 12-year-old self. 19-year-old Asina O'Neill's life was picture perfect on Instagram. More than half a million followers, a glamorous young teenager who seemed to be living the dream. I was miserable. I had it all and I was miserable because when you let yourself be defined by numbers, you let yourself be defined by something that is not pure, that is not real, and that is not love. But look closely at the captions. She's gone back to change them to say what was really going on. Not real life. I didn't pay for the dress, took countless photos trying to look hot for Instagram, she now writes. Not real life. Took over a hundred in similar poses trying to make my stomach look good. And there is nothing zen about trying to look zen. Taking a picture of you trying to be zen and proving you're zen on Instagram. Everything I did was for views, for likes, for followers. I thought, what a hero. This girl is standing up for other girls and giving them permission to stop trying to be so perfect. She was making $2,000 a day by posting on social media. And she went back and deleted all her accounts. And to this day has not returned to be a, a social media influencer or a vegan lifestyle enthusiast, as she said. Righteousness or success sometimes comes when we measure ourselves against others. We know that's not the right way to go about it, but we do it all the time anyway, don't we? Well, Jesus tells the story that two came to pray that day, but only one went home justified in the eyes of God. What if the secret to being a Christian is simply to recognize that we are always in need of God's grace. And when we realize that, we can also realize that God has already called you righteous and holy and beloved and perfect as a child of God. How many came to church this morning? I, I don't know, the ushers will count you at some point, and we'll, we'll have a number to put into the system. How many came to church this morning? 
And how many will go home justified? In a little bit, the choir will sing. How many members will sing and how many will go home justified? How many of you will put some money in the offering plate this morning? And how many will go home justified? How many of you are coming downstairs for breakfast? And how many will leave justified? How many of you attended a committee meeting this week? And how many will go home justified? Jesus says the answer to that second question is easy. Everyone who recognizes their need for grace has the opportunity to be justified. All those who look to God and not to themselves. God loves us, accepts us, and calls us righteous, not because of what we've done, but because of who we are. God's beloved children. Because our God is loving and gracious and merciful. Thanks be to our God. Amen.